That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Tim Kalashaw, and my dilemma is I've forgotten how to pack. I've been traveling for 40 years, and whenever I get somewhere, I find I have no socks, no underwear. bought underwear at Walgreens in Washington last time I was there. Uh, I have no something. It, it, it should be the easiest thing in the world, and I've completely forgotten how to do it. So I actually love this because it was only two trips back to Miami where I forgot to pack underwear entirely. And I was there for an entire week. So day two, I'm rushing out to find a store on South Beach that, uh, you know, has underwear that's, uh, appropriate and proper for somebody, uh, to wear to work and spend all day in, uh, which is harder than you might think in a place, uh, like South Beach. Uh, but Tim, my best advice for you, and this seems odd for someone who's been traveling for as long as you have, but clearly there's some sort of blockage or, you know, forgetfulness that you've acquired in your, uh, you know, older years. And so you got to make a list and it stinks because you never had to make one before for the previous 40 years. But I do think if you just have one list and it's the same for every business trip, that's roughly, you know, toiletries, underwear, socks, running shoes, shampoo, razor, et cetera. And you have to go through and check it off as you put it in your bag. It's tedious and frustrating, but unfortunately, it might be your only hope if you're going on trips for getting your underwear and your socks and everything else. The commish has spoken. This week's guest is Tim Kalashaw, a sports columnist, radio host, TV personality, and author. He can be read in the Dallas Morning News, seen on ESPN's Around the Horn, and heard on Denison Kalashaw on KESN ESPN Dallas. We had a great conversation. A guy that I've worked with a bunch uh, for the last couple of years on Around the Horn and have run into on Radio Row at the Super Bowl. Um, just the most likable, easygoing guy and love talking to him about the challenges of working in the same market for years and years, how do you manage those relationships as you're talking about the ups and downs of a team, how to cover the Cowboys when Jerry Jones is looming over everything, uh, how he started a friendship with Jimmy Johnson and others over beers and then eventually had to reestablish those relationships without the beers when he decided to quit drinking and go public with his struggles uh, with maintaining and controlling his drinking uh, what that meant for his career and his life, and and also some fun stuff about how he tries to stay young musically and and share some some cool stuff with his kids. So I love talking to Tim. I hope you guys like the conversation. Well, that's what she said. Happy to welcome in another friend from around the horn. I've really enjoyed getting to know some of these uh, guys and gals by having them on the podcast instead of just looking at them through a television screen a couple times a week and, and chatting and debating. So happy to have Tim Kalashaw on the show. Um, so much to get to, but I tend to like to start way back. So when you were a kid, what were you like? Were you really into sports? Were you as easygoing and likable as you are now? <laughs> uh, I was into sports. I was into watching sports and memorizing statistics, the playing of them. I was good in sort of a neighborhood way, but once it got to physical competition, uh, <laughs> I found that I was I was much better watching and writing. So I got back to to that. the The likable part, I, I'd like to think, has always been there. There would be some people who would, might disagree with that, but pretty easygoing. 
So why do you think you were so into statistics and, and following it in, in that way? Um, you know, I, I only have one brother. He's older. Uh, he was, God, I hate to say this, he was probably more athletic back then, although I beat him in golf <laughs> on a regular basis now, the things that are important. And, you know, maybe I knew I wasn't going to be as good as he was, so I was, but I could learn more and I could know more. Hey, did you know the Yankees and the Mets did this when we lived in New Jersey? And, and so, you know, I, I just think it was a way of kind of maybe being ahead of my brother. Okay, interesting. Yes, yeah, so you had a different angle on it. Were your parents into sports? Uh, not in any extreme way. My, da- uh, my dad uh, playing golf with dad, my, which I'm still occasionally privileged to do. He turned 93 recently. Oh, wow. He got in nine holes uh, about a month <laughs> That's ago. That's great. But he was into football, and he was into the Cowboys after we moved to Dallas. And he got four-season tickets at the Cotton Bowl, going back a little ways. So the last four years they played in the Cotton Bowl before they went to Texas Stadium, going to all those games with the family was great. Kind of changed when they went to Texas Stadium and I was up in high school and then college. And, and But uh, everybody writes about their bond with their dad through baseball. But my dad, it was football and golf. So what age were you when you moved to um, to Dallas area? We, I was just in third grade. I was I was eight years old. Uh, so, you know, I mostly grew up in Dallas. But I went kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, living in New Jersey. You know, the Yankee games back then when other teams didn't have games on. You know, the Yankees were on almost all their games. The Mets came into being. They were on all the time. We went to Yankee Stadium. We went to Madison Square Garden and saw the Rangers and, and the Knicks. So just kind of get – that's always – I've always kept some weird connection to New York teams, like yeah. when Joe Namath was winning and I was in high school. Uh, I was the only guy in Dallas. Everybody else liked whoever, Roger Staubach and all the Cowboys, and I was a Joe Namath guy. But, uh, you know, mostly grew up – so it's from third grade on, it's mostly a Texas background. So were you fans of teams from both places, though, throughout growing up? Yeah. I went back and forth on the Cowboys – liked them, got tired of them, got tired of them not winning, beating the Packers, um, <laughs> liked the Yankees, but I mostly liked the Yankees when they weren't good. I, I liked them in those 70s years when they had Ron Guidry and Bobby Mercer and Roy White and weren't winning. Now, I, I still liked them when they got Reggie Jackson and they became good, but I liked them a lot in high school when they were kind of a dying team owned by CBS until Steinbrenner bought them. But uh, the Dallas teams... Uh, the Rangers moved here when I was in high school and we went to a lot of games, but because the Rangers were bad, they were the former senators. You know, we went to see the Oakland days. We went to see the twins, the Yankees, the other teams we liked. So it, it was a different kind of, you know, the other teams were newer. I was already in, I was already out of college when the Mavericks came here and, and, and the hockey team only came here in the nineties. So it was different from growing up in a city where all the teams were there. Really, the Cowboys were the only team here when I grew up. So in high school, I presume you were not playing sports, but just still followed them closely. And is that when you got into sort of writing? And, and were you that young when you thought about wanting to do it for a living? Uh, I actually was, and, and you presumed correct. I was, <laughs> I was after a remarkable junior high career in which I scored, I believe, one point. I was cut my <laughs> sophomore year. A terrible move by Coach Jerry Stone, who has admitted 
it, it was a blunder. He went on to coach Spud Webb <laughs> in junior college. But uh, once I got to that point, and I pretty much knew, although I still stupidly, uh, I, I went to Colorado. I, I spent one year as a freshman at Boulder. And I actually, I can't even believe I had the, we'll say, courage to do this. I met with the basketball coach at Colorado and talked to him about trying out for the team. You know, this is after being cut as a sophomore in high school, but I played all the time. You know, I played in a church league and a city league, and, you know, I had a decent long-distance shot. But uh, And he, he acknowledged we will have open tryouts at the end of the year, and that turned out to be, you know, 50 guys who were right. all playing intramurals, and 30 of them were better than me, and 20 of them I was better than <laughs> I kind of figured out, okay, the career is definitely over. Let's let's move <laughs> on. But, yeah, even in high school, writing for the school paper, I never thought about TV. I never really thought about radio. I guess I probably thought about being a play-by-play guy some because I would play stupid games in my room and, and my parents would say they could hear me announcing, <laughs> you know, baseball games as I sat there by myself. But I mainly thought about newspapers. We We – Back then, like most people, we subscribed to the morning paper and the afternoon paper. And, you know, that's where you got your news. That's where the standings and the stats, and that's where you got everything. And uh, I, uh, you know, t- the idea of working for the Dallas Morning News or the Dallas Times-Herald, if I could do that when I was in high school, that that was pretty much the uh, the lifetime goal. So why just the one year at Boulder? Oh, now you're getting into a tricky area. Um, I one year at Boulder. And uh, I came home and worked at uh, North Park Mall, a, a sporting goods store for a summer job, where a year later, working that same job, I worked with Drew Pearson and Harvey Martin. That's what football players did back in those days. They came and worked in, in malls in the off season. But uh, I will just say that it, that summer, we'll say I fell in love and mm. uh, leave it at that and say I decided not to go back right away although uh, that led me to going down a year later to Austin with her and going to University of Texas. So I call that my redshirt year. Uh, <laughs> I went to junior college. I took nine hours at Richland Junior College, the Thunder Ducks. And uh, so I took night classes there, and I was working 40 hours at the sporting goods store. And I was a little bit lost in terms of hadn't fully decided I that – I wanted to do the journalism thing, didn't really have anything else in mind. My brother had gone to law school at Stanford, and I knew I wasn't following uh, that sort of line. <laughs> so I was kind of trying to figure things out. I, I knew I would go back to school eventually. And when, when I did, I kind of thought either film school uh, or journalism would be the way to go. And University of Texas, even back then, was noted for both of those. So I, I headed that direction. Loved uh, everything about Boulder the year I was there it was just, and I, and I always I always feel kind of bad about that because I I kidded around a lot with Kate Fagan, who obviously had a nice basketball career for Colorado, and I would text her when the Buffs you know won a football game or something because it's like I wanted to f- still be a fan, but I I right. failed in my <laughs> matriculation there. So what did your parents think of you dropping out of school and making life changes? based on a girl 
Oh, you're you're hitting the good. You you, you found all the good questions. <laughs> uh, what I actually did, they were when I decided not to go back. They were out of town. I believe they were in Europe. I, in fact, I know they were in Europe. And before they came back, and I had decided I'm not going to go. I made sure I could still have my sporting goods job for the fall. You know, because I didn't want to say I'm not going back to school and I don't even have a job. But I didn't really tell them that specifically. But they <laughs> asked very quickly, how much does Nancy have to do with this? And I said, oh, she didn't, she doesn't have it. You know, this is my decision, but she, she had nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, they were okay in terms of, you know, you can do this, but, you know, you're not going to, you're going to get back to college at some point. And, and I kind of knew that too. Uh, I just wasn't ready to go at that moment. They really weren't. I thought about this because at one point my son wanted to quit George Mason and I was pretty, pretty much the other way. No, you're not going to quit. You're not going to take a year off. You're not going to take a semester off. They were pretty accommodating as long as they, they believed they understood I was eventually going to go ahead and get my right. degree somewhere. So how long did Nancy last? Uh, Nancy was great. And Nancy, uh, uh, <laughs> off and on through all, mostly on throughout my time at UT. And so for about another three years and she was terrific, but, uh, we moved on after, after I graduated. And that was probably one of, you know, many bad decisions I've made along that route, but, <laughs> um, you know, she was a great girl and I, uh, Still, will occasionally hear from her down in the down in Houston. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't a total um, fling then. Sometimes that happens, and then within the first like five months of arriving at the new school together, you break up, and you're like, "Well, this was an interesting choice." Um, yeah, yeah. So at least, yeah, there was some staying power to it. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that would have been bad if it had gone the other direction. So you were a, a journalism major at UT. Yeah, I was. I, I went there, and I was a film major for a year. And then when we got to the point where, okay, to take the big radio, TV, film, the big class, you have to, you know, kind of to show your interest. There's such demand for it. You basically have to camp out overnight in the hall and hmm. sleep there. And the first, you know, hundred people or whatever get in. And I was like, I'm really not that interested in this stuff. I don't even take good pictures. Why do I think I'm <laughs> going to be a good director? Uh, you know, I love films and I really, I, you know, had I, you know, I thought about being a film critic as much as being a sports writer at that time, because I went to a lot of movies and I'd right. taken a film class actually at, at, at the junior college and became close friends with the, the film teacher there and learned a lot about it. But once I got to that, I thought, you know, newspapers are what I really want to do. I don't know if there's money in it. And I know my dad is going to bring that up. <laughs> but uh, I, I got to give it a shot. And I started working at the Daily Texan and uh, I had to switch my major. And uh, I guess away I went. So uh, Daily Texan, then did you end up at the San Jose Mercury News right after that? No, back then we had to take a little more circuitous route. I worked at the <laughs> Corpus Christi Caller Times. That was my first real newspaper job for a year, covering mostly high schools down there. Um, and then uh, I went to the Daily Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. Uh, and I was there almost three years and covered 
a little bit of high schools, a little bit of college. Eventually covered OU football, which was funny that I covered I covered Jimmy Johnson for an off season at Oklahoma State, and I covered Barry Switzer for one full season covering the Sooners, and then I ended up covering both of them as a beat writer a decade later with the Dallas Morning News when they were with the Cowboys. But so I went, it went from Oklahoma to Dallas for four years. And then I left. I had this, I had the, I have to be a baseball writer mentality in my head. I, I have to, I have to be a legitimate ball writer. And so I went to the San Jose Mercury News and covered the Giants for two years. And then I came back to the morning news where I've actually been back for 30 years, which is kind of shocking. Yeah, that's a long time. Um, <laughs> I mean, you well, we always talk. We always joke about this memory. on Around the Horde that, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the elder statesmen, but you always fool us because you don't look old and you don't sound and act old. And so we sometimes forget you've been at this for quite some time. Um, yeah, so you've been a beat writer for the Cowboys, the Stars, the Rangers. Um, you mentioned when you were at the Oklahoma and you covered the Sooners. You also covered the Giants. So all sorts of beats. What was your favorite team to cover? What has been? You know, in a lot of ways, it was the Dallas Stars because I switched. I'd covered the Cowboys at that time in two different stretches. I'd covered them for six years and I had turned 40, which at the time seemed like a ripe old age. And to you, it might seem like a ripe old <laughs> age, but I realize now it's not quite there. It's not quite the end of the line, but I was kind of looking for something. I kind of wanted to get away from the Cowboys and take a breath of fresh air, but I didn't, I liked hockey as a kid, but I mean, other than seeing it, games on TV and there weren't a lot of games and going to some minor league hockey games when the Dallas Blackhawks were here, you know, I didn't know the game the way you probably should know something to cover it. So I kind of had to learn on the fly, but all the people, the scouts and everybody were so nice. I mean, they were, they were so grateful to have coverage period in 1995. I mean, hockey was, was not a blip on the radar in Dallas until all of a sudden the stars dropped out of, Minnesota and landed here and I and I covered it very quickly I, I, I was only the beat writer for three years but I very quickly covered a terrible team that no one cared about to a team that became good but disappointing uh, very quickly to a team that became great and 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 then the first year as a columnist is when they they won the Stanley Cup in uh, in 1999. I loved covering the Blackhawks in sort of a beat reporter capacity. I find that hockey players get a reputation for being kind of big, dumb oafs, and they're actually really cool. They're not as uh, recognized because of the helmets and because the sport isn't quite as popular, so they don't have quite the ego and the attitude. Um, I, I've always really liked covering hockey. Hockey players are good dudes. Um, the Cowboys, I'm sure, are a completely different animal, and uh, especially with Jerry Jones at the helm. You know, we talk about his power a lot or his presumed power. We saw he even tried to sue the other owners when he didn't like that ruling on Ezekiel Elliott. How do you cover a team with an owner like that? How is it different? Do you have any stories from how you have to maneuver your way around differently because of that? Well, it's changed a little bit from, you know, I was initially a beat writer covering him, and now I've been a columnist covering him for a long time. But initially the access to the team was still very good, but over time it's, you really, you have, you have access to Jerry and his world and his view and very little access to so much of the rest of the team that it does, it becomes a challenge not only as a writer, but especially on radio to not do 
just one Jerry Jones said this and Jerry Jones said that segment after another. Uh, you know, I think the, the fans want more than that, but football everywhere, the, the NFL limits your access so much, and it's that way here. Uh, Jerry presents his own, obviously. You can look at his problems, but it's also it's great as a columnist. I mean, Content. to have an owner who does two radio shows a week and talks right. after the game and talks as openly as he does. There, there are many, many things to not like about him or as a fan to think, you know, you're not running the organization properly as a writer or as a radio person or TV. He's terrific. I mean, you, you will, you'll, you'd love to have three Jerry Joneses uh, in your town <laughs> with all the, the material and to some extent, the access that he will at times give you uh, at least, at least after games. But, but it's, you know, it, it, it is very different. You really, you do feel at times you, you don't really cover the Cowboys. You cover Jerry Jones. Mm. So, I've always wondered this because I did very briefly do sort of a beat reporter capacity, but it wasn't to break news. It was for a website that was about player personalities and you know uh-huh. finding out more about them. So I wasn't really doing the same job as everybody that was in the locker room in the clubhouse with me every day. But when you're trying to do that for years and years. You obviously earn the respect of people by being fair and by being good at your job, by, you know, establishing personal connections and relationships. How do you manage when different people play by different rules, right? So some athletes might not like when you're critical of them, but understand that that's the job and still give you access and interviews. And some might be the kind who are willing to completely shut you off if they don't like something that you write. Is it a matter of trying to figure out who's who? And then how do you change or maybe not change your coverage based on worrying about your ability to maintain relationships? I, I try very hard, and, I, and I'm sure I fail at times, but I try very hard. It's impossible to do, but my goal is to keep my feelings for somebody out of, out of the work. And, you know, otherwise you get to the point where you just write good things or cut slack for the, mm. the players or the coaches you like, and you just go after the people who don't talk to you or you don't like for whatever reason. And there's a lot of people who do that, and, I, and it's just – you see it all the time. You can see the athletes, some athletes who test positive for PEDs and it's Andy Pettit. He's a great guy. Who cares? You know, and, right. and other guys who do it and they're, you know, uh, A-Rod is the one guy named on a list of 103 and everybody just kills him for something that was supposed to be, um, you know, a secret list because they didn't like A-Rod. And I really think you have to try to avoid it. Now it's hard. Like, I, I write a lot about Jason Garrett, and I've been highly critical of him, and I've said more than once, said two seasons ago he should be fired at the end of the year. You know, it's a lot of it just for eight and a half years, one playoff, or now two playoff wins. It's just, it's just not enough. But when I see him, I ran into him in LaGuardia Airport two weeks ago, and uh, he and his wife, and always have a good conversation with Jason Garrett. He puts it aside and either doesn't care or just thinks that's the best approach. And I try to, you know, you wish everybody was that way. They're, they're, they're not. I mean, athletes I've liked, Mike Madonna, who I had a good relationship with, I, I wrote something that I didn't even think was that bad during the playoffs one year. And he just, when I saw him in Edmonton, he was just all over me like, what was that? I said, that was, that was a positive column. What do you think? <laughs> oh, it would, you just have these odd conversations because, they do develop 
an expectation. Hey, I'm nice to you. I give you quotes. I give you access, whatever. How can you write that I, you know, haven't scored a goal in seven games and I'm letting the team down or whatever. <laughs> so, but it, but, you know, I just, I get frustrated with, and, and, you know, it can be on around the horn or it could be uh, other stuff. You just, you can just see how there are athletes and coaches we don't give any, cut any slack to, and there's some we just right. give break after break. So how do you ingratiate yourself to players and coaches? Is it just a matter of if I do the job well enough for long enough, they will hopefully like me and open up? Or do you have tricks or do you have tendencies that, that work for you over the years? I don't think it's a trick. Um, I think if you're there enough, that helps. Obviously, the landscape, the thing is, that has changed in the last 10 years is, is being recognized from ESPN and that coaches or managers or people tend to know who you are, mm-hmm. most of them, right away. That's a tremendous boost, at least initially. They get who you are, and they some of them are even kind of fascinated with the show. I mean, I my when I covered I covered NASCAR for two years for ESPN, but I had just started, and it was the first or second race I'd been to, and I was walking off with Dale Jr. after he'd been knocked out of a race. You know, he's finished 26th or whatever. And I asked him a couple questions, and he, he's given quick answers. And then he goes, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He goes, that show you do around the horn, do you sit in front of a green screen? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, no, technically not, but uh, it, just, it just gives you an unusual. It does, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've experienced it too. We it, just it had helped. Terry Stotts on Spain and Company at the end of the interview. He said, "Did you win around the horn today?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "No, I think it was rigged." He said, "Yeah, that sounds like a reality rigged job." And I was like, "Oh, I didn't realize you were watching," um, which Terry is nice. Stotts I never know was... when people know who I am at all, especially on radio, since I'm pretty new. So around the horn definitely helps. Yeah, Terry Stotts was you know Rick Carlisle's main assistant, or he and Dwayne Casey were actually on the 2011 championship team. So every time I'd be at a you know, uh, a shoot around on the road in Oklahoma city or, or Miami, Terry Stotts had already talked to me about it and he knew we got paid by the show and he would just <laughs> say, we're costing you money today, aren't we? <laughs> Love yeah, that. I said, you sure are. You That's better great. make this worthwhile. <laughs> um, so you've been at it for a long time, which means I'm certain there is some sort of take or column that you would like back. So of all the things you wrote that were a terrible take, or you were just dead wrong, what would you most like back? Oh, my. Um, some of them are just silly. They're all the prediction-type things you get wrong. The, for, actually, the first column I ever wrote for the Daily Texan, the first my senior year, I got to write columns instead of just reporting and news stories. My first column was, the first lead was, one week into his senior season, Earl Campbell's Heisman hopes are all but gone. <laughs> and that was the start of a brilliant career. I mean, uh, just getting one thing wrong after another. <laughs> we'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash said. 
ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. You know, we were talking about some ways that you kind of establish relationships and something you've talked about a lot publicly was, you know, getting access to Jimmy Johnson because you would be sitting next to him at the bar or talking to one of the NASCAR drivers over vodka um, I wonder, how does that start, right? The Jimmy Johnson relationship, let's use that one. How do you end up either finding out what his local cheers is or, or you know, happening upon making those meetings over, over beers? The Jimmy Johnson thing was just uh, good fortune in that he did a Thursday night, the usual local TV coaches show. And they had a, uh, I don't know if it was longstanding, but for several years they'd had a segment where the morning news beat writer asked the coach a question. I guess they'd done it a little bit with Landry at the end of his time. But anyway, when I got on the beat in 92, so on Thursday nights, he and I at the same TV station, I'm in a different little studio from him, but we do a little two or three minute segment where I ask him a couple of questions. And I knew he and Rhonda, his girlfriend at the time, he's, I believe they're married now. Um, I knew they always went out for drinks, but I didn't do anything about it. About halfway through that first year in 92, he just said, you want to join me and Rhonda on the border? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and we went there and sat there, had a few beers. There's a Thursday night football game on. Nobody's really bothering him for the mm. most part. He's just sitting. It's not a very crowded place in downtown Dallas. And, uh, we would just talk and, and Rhonda would be part of the conversation. Then we might talk about Seinfeld or we might talk about something completely different. It wasn't, certainly wasn't pull out a notepad and, and write this down. But as time went on, he became more and more open and I learned how he felt about, there were obviously already problems with Jerry Jones, but I felt like I got to know them better. I got to know some of his issues, even with, with, some of his doubts about Troy Aikman, which once they won the Super Bowl, he completely erased like he never had any doubt. <laughs> and he never for a moment thought Steve Walsh could compete with him. Uh, that was all somebody else's story. Uh, but uh, that, so that just happened over a couple year uh, period. And that was very good because there was a Jerry Joe, there was a real, you turned out you were a Jimmy guy or a Jerry guy as time went on. And the competition was, getting great stuff uh, from Jerry Jones and we needed to get as much as we could from Jimmy Johnson as, as, as things melted down after in the, in the spring of 1994. So, you know, you've talked about how some of those relationships, you know, became easier to make and, and, and maintain because you had the connection of, Oh, we're just meeting over beers or we're having a drink together. And then it, it opens up into those kinds of insights that you otherwise might not get in, in a locker room. 
But then that had to end. Eventually you realized yeah. that, that this was a, a bad habit for you and it wasn't just um, something that you can control in terms of work or, or socially. So can you tell me about the Christmas night when you sort of, you, you wrote about this um, afterwards, but the Christmas night when things sort of came to a head? Yeah, this is after I've already had, I had a DUI in 2007, summer of 2007, that I managed, uh, I, I've said before, the, for me, the biggest story wasn't the one that I broke. It was the one that I managed to keep from breaking and keep the morning news and ESPN from finding out about until I told them about it. Uh, yeah, that's kind of remarkable. Later. Yeah. It is. And, I, you know, I expected to see it on the crawl on ESPN one day, you know. Did you have to, ESPN like, pay someone off? And, Did you know somebody in the, in the police? Or? I had good luck, if you want to call it that. My name is William Kalashaw. Mm. So it would have showed up that way. And it wasn't in Dallas. It was just outside of Dallas in Hunt County. So it wouldn't show up on uh, anything a Dallas reporter would see. It would have to be somebody working for the, basically the Greenville, Texas newspaper who sees the name William Kalashaw and pursues it. And unfortunately no one did. Um, but anyway, to that point, once I did that, I quit drinking and driving, but I didn't come close to quitting drinking. I just uh, essentially moved where the bars were and lived in an apartment closer to the bars. And uh, my life was personal life was kind of a mess. I was personally a bit of a mess. And it was the end of 2008. It was Christmas night, and uh, I'd been drinking, not Christmas Eve. I've already done the Christmas stuff with my kids and all that, and I'm back home. And I go out to this bar and drink vodka heavily and quickly and don't remember leaving there but I do know I fell cracked my skull don't know exactly how but I came to in, in the back of a um, uh, an ambulance and mm. I spent the next three days at Parkland Hospital and missed the Cowboys Eagles game the famous 44 to 6 Eagles victory uh, one of Tony Romo's lower moments. I was having a lower one in Parkland Hospital. But even that, sadly, didn't convince me that I needed to stop. It wasn't until five months later when I had a seizure related to the head injury, which my doctor, my neurosurgeon, Bruce Mickey, Dr. Mickey had told me there's a 50-50 chance you'll have a seizure uh, based on where you suffered this injury. You need to make sure if you're drinking at all, you're drinking very little, Made sure you're getting a good night's sleep, eating healthy meals. And I was pretty much doing none of those things. Hmm. And so in May of 2009, I uh, had a seizure while doing a radio show in a studio, but during a commercial break and near the end of hmm. the show. So I was even able to, the people I was with knew about it, but we didn't even say anything about it on the air. I went to the hospital. And that was the weekend that my daughter, uh, she was about to graduate high school, and she was speaking. She was a lariat, the, the drill team. And she had, a, she, was, she had to give a speech, and she was very nervous about it, but excited about it, <clears throat> and excited about it for me to be there. And the hospital wouldn't let me go. Mm. And I had asked them, please, just let me go. They'll drive me there. You can bring me back. You're going to release me the next day anyway. And they said, we cannot let you go. And... She started crying when they said that, and I decided at that moment that when I got out of there, uh, I was through drinking, and I didn't know if it would work. I didn't know 
if I would need to go to AA or rehab or anything else. Uh, but uh, a light finally, belatedly, went on, and uh, that was May 9th of 2009, and uh, I did quit cold turkey, which I've since learned through doing some research and some speeches. That's a very hard way to do it. Not many people are very successful with it, but uh, that was the last time I ever had a drink. To finish, to answer the other part of your question, one of the things I was concerned about, even though I knew I needed to quit drinking, was how do I hang out with Charles Barkley? I mean, when, Charles had become a good friend. We always hung out when he came to town. Needless to say, there were beverages involved. Mm-hmm. How do I, what if I do go see Jimmy Johnson? What if I want to, I'm in a situation, uh, you know, in a training camp and, and some coaches are out having beers. What am I going to do? Just stand there and have a, a Diet Coke? I worried about all the wrong things, but I, I, I realized it doesn't matter if it costs me a story or anything else. I need to, uh, I need to do it for my life. And fortunately, I've gone 10 years without it. So, you know, let's go back to Parkland. Um, you had a .26, I think, BAC yes. in, you wrote about in your book, and you had a fractured skull. What do you tell your bosses? Uh, and, and if at the time you're still sort of keeping this being a problem from friends and family, how do you explain that? Uh, again, I they were extremely lacking in curiosity when I told them I had fallen and, and gotten sick and hit my head and I couldn't go to the Eagles game. And uh, they did not even, I'm talking about the morning news bosses, but, yeah. you know, again, my timing was stupidly fortunate. There are no around the horns the week between Christmas and New Year's, so I didn't have to tell them anything because by January 3rd I was back at work. And I was I was very good at hiding a lot of things in my life from a lot of people, whether they were personal, whether they were bosses, whether they were professional, even people I drank with tended to think, yeah, he drinks a lot, but I, I didn't notice anything big about it, but they didn't know that when I went home after being out, I would, you know, drink vodka until I passed out many nights, mm. uh, for, for at least for the, we're talking about the last couple of years, right? you know, 2007, 2008. Um, you know, I think actually when I stopped driving and was only concerned about, and I just took cabs in the pre-Uber days, I think my drinking got worse. That's something I actually worry about in today's culture because with Uber and Lyft, everyone thinks it's fine to just drink as much as you want because you're not driving. I still right. think there's some, there's some health risks involved. Yeah. Keep an eye on your liver. Not the least of which is the driver itself and you being sober enough to know whether you got in the right car and whether they're a safety risk in addition to everything else, right? So during that time, did you do radio or TV or or any cover any events while you were drinking or was it only after you were done that you would then pour it on? No, I didn't. I didn't drink on the job. I didn't. I wasn't. I was never a big day drinker. I mean, maybe in the summer if you went to the lake or something like that, that's kind of a younger era. But, uh, other than, you know, there, if you're if you're writing a column on the Cowboys back then, there's beer in the in the press box, and after you've kind of after you've written or you're about to finish or you're you're finishing it and and going over it again or redoing it for the next edition, you go and grab a beer. But I never got drunk and and tried to do my job, and I never I didn't drink 
during the day, but there's no question, and I thought about this a lot, that I, you know, at times, even though I'm a very fast writer by nature, I was very aware when I was in another city, like, okay, it's, you're covering a night game. It's, you know, it's 12.05. You need to, it's 11.45. You know, the bars are going to close here. The last call is at 1.45. You need to get this done and get out. So right. uh, drinking always played probably more of a role than I gave it credit for. But in terms of, and I've talked to and heard from other people who actually, you know, kept bottles in their desk or drank while they were at work. I, I, I didn't do that. I, at least I wasn't, <laughs> I don't know if I would say that bad because I, because I was pretty bad about what some things I was right. doing, but I was just not um, a day drink. I wanted to get my job done and then go, you know, have fun. You wrote a book called Drunk on Sports that uh, I know Reali and Rachel Nichols and others have said a lot of really positive, great things about. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but um, that obviously came about when you had sort of come to terms with not only the drinking, but also your career and, and all the ways that they intermingled. Um, and that came out in 2013, which was several years after you first decided to publicly write about this. So let's go back to 2009. You're writing a story for the front page of Sports Day um, about you know, deciding to stop drinking and how it affected you. Did you, did you have any reticence about doing that? Did you consult anybody else in your life about whether this was something you wanted to talk about or what it meant to talk about it publicly? No, that's a great question. I, I, that I remember very specifically where I was. It was in summer of 2009. So it's like late July, early August. And it was Josh Hamilton, uh, the news, that he had been out drinking and photos that he'd been out drinking with these women in, in Tempe, Arizona from the spring training came out that weekend. And he, the Rangers were in, in Anaheim and he came out and came out of the locker room and talked as he always did openly and honestly. And, and he took all these questions and he, you know, admitted his faults. And I thought at that time I am, two to three months, I'm only two or three months into not drinking. And I wanted to tell people that, but only a couple of people even do any parts of this story. And I wanted to tell people, I thought, how can he be strong enough? And I'm so weak that I can't even tell my story and what I've done. And it drove me nuts. I, what killed me was we would be sitting there on around the horn on the conference call and it would be, you know, uh, player X just uh, got pulled over for DUI. You know, should he be kicked out of the league? Should he be out for the year? And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this happened to me two years ago. Mm-hmm. How do I even answer this question and try to be somewhat honest about what I feel? And I just really wanted to get it out there. Uh, but I wasn't sure how much. And so I told my boss, my sports editor, I'm writing a Sunday column related to the Josh Hamilton revelations, but it's really about me and it's about drinking problems I've had, but I didn't at the time, I didn't, I didn't mention the DUI. I mentioned going to the hospital and I mentioned that I was just starting on quitting, but I wasn't ready to confess everything. And he told me, We'll have another column, just like a national column or something, 
ready to go. If you decide at the last minute you don't want to do this. And I said, don't worry about it. I want to do this. And so people who are good friends of mine, uh, David Moore, Matt Mosley, people who are in the business but have been good friends of mine, they didn't know some of the drinking parts of it, but they certainly didn't know that I'd stop, that I'd quit for mm. three months. But I wanted to at least get that out there. And I didn't know if that's all I was going to write. But that column, this was 2009, that was back in the days where we still got a lot of emails from readers. Everything now is, you know, Twitter or whatever. But I got more emails from people on that than anything I ever wrote about the Cowboys, good or bad, and mostly positive and heartfelt. Some of it not, but regardless, it just page after page after emails. And I thought maybe if I'm successful with this and I keep this going, it's way too soon right now, but maybe when I'm in like year two of being sober, I should tell the whole story and make a book out of it. And if, if this column helps this many people, or they say it does, maybe the book can end up helping even more. So that was really the start. Josh Hamilton really was the start of the whole impetus for putting it out there in public. How has your work changed since you decided to stop, whether that's in the relationships with people or or just in, in the time spent working or how the product looks or even how you are on television? Is that any different? You know, it's funny because I'll occasionally see either stuff they do on Around the Horn or I'll see video of me from, and I can tell. I can look at, oh God, that's 2008. I can look at my eyes. I can see and it's not that I was even necessarily, I'm certainly, you know, we tape it in the middle of the day, but I can just tell by my look uh, and my face is puffy and everything else is like, God, my hair, I can tell I'm already having a rough morning or something. So that's changed. You eventually sleep better. You initially sleep worse because <laughs> you're not passing out, but you right. eventually get better <laughs> sleep. So that, there's something nice, something nice about that. You know, the work, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say it's better. I just am more comfortable with myself in all my interactions with people I work with, with people I don't work with. And I, I think that helps. I think it's like every show we watch, on whether it's on Netflix or Mad Men or something. When you're keeping a huge secret from people, it tortures you. It, it, it eats you up. And, and, you know, maybe my secret wasn't as big as other people's secrets, but it was a lot to me. It was the one I had. And, you know, unburdening yourself with it, it's always the better way to go. And so has that, have I written better columns? Maybe some days I have, maybe some days I haven't, but I'm always more comfortable sitting down to write them. Do you need to tell us that your real name is Dick Whitman or is, have you gotten everything? I am, in fact, Dick Whitman. <laughs> it's very odd. I was in the Korean War. That doesn't seem to fit. No, I'm, I'm pretty much... Uh, his story, his story is a little different, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But you uh, know, what, didn't you think that show? Didn't that show get worse once his secret was out? The secret's always what makes these shows great, and then when they're yeah. out, yeah, that's kind of true. That's like bit. moonlighting. We needed them not to get together. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's a deep cut, but I know, I know you, I know you know that joke. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. 
Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, grief, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off your first month just by using the discount code SPAIN. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com slash Spain. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. BetterHelp.com slash Spain. That's what she said. What's with the Top Cat nickname? What's that from? Top Cat is from um, somebody of your generation might not even know this character, but in the early 60s, a primetime TV series, Top Cat, cartoon, from the same people that did the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Top Cat was this cool cat in New York City, and uh, his friends called him TC. My friends, when I was little, called me TC. That's my initials. And I became Top Cat. And we alley occasionally. He doesn't do it much anymore. But actually, Max Kellerman did it, too. So in the early days of the show, I was Top Cat much more often. And I would occasionally you know, how people recognize you and you run into them, people might say, Top Cat. Yeah. Now, they don't do that much anymore. Maybe it doesn't fit uh, the profile anymore, but... I'm going to start uh, doing it on the show because I know Reality will give me points for that. Yes. Yes, he will. If you refer to me as Top Cat, you will Yeah, if I'm like, Top Cat's right, he'll absolutely give me many points. (laughs) I'm doing that the next time we're on the show together. Well, you're going to be sitting there stewing like, oh... You already beat me twice last That's week. That's true. I didn't even need showdown. it. I didn't even need any special tricks. <laughs> um, so often, speaking of reality, he'll mention uh, during the commercial breaks when we're chatting about the show that you're a cool dad going to concerts with your kids and that you always seem to have your finger on the pulse of what's new and maybe surprising to people, um, par- partly because people don't realize that you're a little older than they think. Um, but also because a lot of people sort of give up on, on keeping up with the Joneses in terms of music. So are there any recent uh, concerts that you've been to that would impress us or bands that you're getting into that you're hoping to see? Uh, okay, the most recent one is, is going the other direction. The most recent one is Paul McCartney. Okay, of my yeah. generation. But <laughs> the important thing is my son flew in from D.C. to come see it. So that's that's my influence on yeah, them. Now I have that's seen, great. Now, the last time I saw Radiohead was in your town. Uh, flying oh, nice. into Chicago when they were there, was that last summer? Whatever that was, a couple summers ago, uh, with my son and daughter. That was her first Radiohead show. I think I've seen them four times with my son. My daughter, uh, most recent concert I've seen with her was the XX, kind of a younger band. Yeah. Cool band. Uh, but again, she... She, I was proud of this. She flew to New York, actually, to go to the old U.S. Open site, Forest Hills, to see the National. Uh, just from hearing the National so many, so many damn times in my car, that, <laughs> that she, she, she said, "I got to go see this band." So those are the most recent. McCartney's the most recent, which that's the average age of at that concert was you know it was deceased. 
you know, they, these people were <laughs> old and, and he, much like Springsteen, he almost plays too long. He plays yeah. two hours and 45 minutes. Right. Uh, he, he could hold up. The audience couldn't. The audience is, is you know, is on the ropes after two hours. <laughs> but, uh, I was very proud that my son wanted to fly in and he was very, yeah, that's great. very impressed. He puts on a good show, McCartney. And I was just at oh the, the Rolling Stones last week, speaking of uh, deceased audiences. Yeah. It was a very calm pit. It was not fighting very many people for space. Everyone was just kind of like, <laughs> we're cool. Everybody get your own spot. We're good. Um, this is awesome, Tim. I love catching up with you. Um, and before you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody oh. expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. A speed round of sorts. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Ooh, uh, Babylon by Bus by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Ooh, nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, just being organized. Never uh, being late for anything. You're not a procrastinator? No. Well... I can't procrastinate, but I don't never miss deadlines, and I never miss meetings or being uh, being on top of things. Right. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, uh, some um, personal life uh, <laughs> <laughs> struggles in my personal life, okay. but but we I'm won't bring Nancy out. back into this again. Yeah, where is Nancy? Let's get her. <laughs> Uh, we'll leave it at that then. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? I have not. I've, I've been in a shoving fight that, that I thought <laughs> would turn into one, but luckily it never did. And I would, at this point, I'd like to keep it that way. So just baseball, not NBA. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, at. exactly. A lot On of the fight meter. around. <laughs> uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? <sighs> who do I want to, whose life do I want? Uh, I want to be um, Clay Thompson and have a perfect jump shot for a day. Oh, that'd be nice. That would be nice. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, God. Do I even want to tell that? This yes. takes half a minute. Okay. Uh, I introduced, you know who Adam Rippon is? Obviously mm -hmm. the skater. Really good on social media. So I saw him at the Super Bowl uh, media and I told him, hey, I, I think – you're really great at what you do, and I think you're funny on Twitter and stuff. He goes, hey, man, I think you're good at what you do, and, I, and your show has really been influential <laughs> for me. And I thought, that's weird, but that's nice. And I told my <laughs> daughter about it that night. And the next day I saw him, and I asked him something about Dancing with the Stars. And he goes, no, I've never been on Dancing with the Stars. What do you mean? Oh, no. And I realized I was not talking to Adam Rapon. I was talking to a radio guy from Los Angeles who looked oh, no. a lot like oh, no. Adam Rapon. And I've already told people I met Adam Rapon. He's very cool. <laughs> and he watches around the horn. <laughs> and it, it's some guy named Dave somebody. The schmo. I don't, I don't know. It, 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 was, it was, I didn't even know how to get out of the conversation. I oh, said, hey, gosh. I got to run. I'll, I'll get back to you. I thought, what am I doing? I don't even know. What I'm talking to here. He does look a little. I mean, he looks actually a little bit more like Sean Avery than Adam Rapon, but uh, I'll give it to you. 
Uh, so have you reached out to Adam Rapon to try to like you know meet him so <laughs> no. that you haven't then you can retroactively no, luckily, not be a I liar? Almost, I almost <laughs> tweeted something that night about it, and I was thank God I didn't uh, because uh, I would have got. I've never met you. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's great. Uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, my eating habits, which I improve one year and then resort to old ones the next, and can't stay on course. It's a constant struggle. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, number eight, if you could play commish for a day, what rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to? Oh, all society. Mm-hmm. So this, is, this is everything. It's everything, not uh, just sports. Anything uh, in the world that everyone would have to be and do, or if you said so. Since I got hit this morning, and I'm sure the girl that hit me was looking at her phone. Oh, Everybody... No. I mean, it was a, it was a fender bender barely, but it was still ridiculous. Uh, there, when your car starts, your phone should go off. Something would, an app that makes everybody's yeah. phones go off, so they stop reading their damn phone while they're driving. You know, my friend's car had that once. I remember because I sent her a text, and it sent me back an automated text that said, "You know, this driver is currently." Um, like using her vehicle and well, whatever. And it was like when she plugged it in, the car would prevent yeah. it from. Yeah, I, that I think would be you good. voluntarily put that on. I, 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 yeah. It's mandatory when I'm the commission. Yeah, that's very smart. That's a good rule. That's one we all have to work on. It's like, I, you know, you could tell the person that's driving when you're in the passenger seat to stop. And can I help you with that? But then when it's you and you're trying to get your maps open or respond to a text or something, yeah, yeah. it's a problem for sure. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, maybe what we talked about earlier when I, uh, decided to quit drinking and came home and, and I was suddenly by myself and <laughs> pouring out vodka in my apartment, but thinking, you know, I really have to do this. I can't, I can't, I used to do things for like, I'll not drink for a month. Uh, or I'll not drink for a hundred days. I can't play that stupid game anymore. I really have to do this. And I was scared that that I wasn't going to have the the willpower to do it. I wouldn't. I didn't even know how to go about trying to you know find a rehab center or go to AA or something to do. But uh, yeah. I was I was pretty scared. Was that scarier for you than when you woke up in the hospital? Because I think it's terrifying to wake up and not have remembered falling or getting there or what happened right before that. That was bad, but there's there's something oddly comforting when you're in the hospital. You like know okay, nothing bad should right. happen now right. all these people know what they're doing whatever i've done they're going to make it better i'm i'm in good hands now compared to when you when you're just off fending for yourself yeah that makes sense uh number 10 what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you i would say he smelled nice <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. It's not necessarily a phrase, but I like I, I, I like that one too much. You need to tell me that, and I'll go work on things. <laughs> uh, and then finally, the bonus: Who would you recommend I have on? That's what she said. The podcast. Oh, who should you have? You've had a lot of good people. Yeah, I'm sure you've had all your. Yeah, you've had all your little Miami friends. <laughs> 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 they've they've had enough exposure. Today. Um, uh, have you had Eric Rydholm on? No, but I've requested, and he's sort of doing little to no interviews, he says. 
Of course, I'm sure he'll pop up on somebody else. He's not available for that. comment. The man who yes, that's what he said. Shows? Yes, I'm going to start holding <laughs> him hostage and say, moment. "I'm going to stop flying to Miami and doing highly questionable for you unless you come on my podcast." I need to work on my negotiating yeah, skills. That. You've got yeah. some power. You've got some authority. <laughs> with this. I want to find out what more about this guy. Agreed. I'll make that my goal then: is uh, blackmailing yeah. him into coming on. <laughs> yeah. So Kalashaw is going to do. The ghost of Al Davis every day on the show. All right. It's a deal. Go do it. <laughs> it's a deal. Uh, awesome, Tim. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me. That's what she said. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show. It's called Spain and Company, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on National ESPN Radio, Sirius XM Channel 80, and the ESPN app. If you can't catch it live, you can listen to select segments posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. Today, people who don't understand personal space. If I don't know you, I don't want to touch you. In fact, I probably don't even want to touch you if I do know you. So let's just all have our little bubbles and stay a safe distance away from each other unless we have mutually agreed to hug or high-five or participate in a sport or otherwise connect our flesh in any way based on an understood agreement. If I'm in line, back up. If I'm on the train and it's not completely packed, move over. If I'm walking down the street, we'll both do our part to move to the side and pass each other untouched instead of you insisting on walking three across and taking me out with your hip. If we're at a concert, I get it. The pit is wild. There's people moving everywhere. You're trying to get some space. It's very tough to enjoy your bubble. But if I keep moving a step back away from you, that's not because I want to let you step back so you're further away from the person in front of you and still inches away from my face. I am moving to get away from you. Do not get closer to me. And this is especially important if you have long flowing hair because I especially hate it when people's hair touches me. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. In fact, at the Rolling Stones the other night that I just was talking to Tim about, I had the unfortunate circumstance of spending half of the show standing behind a couple, both of whom had long, curly hair down their backs. And whenever I'd move to sort of avoid touching them with my hot, sweaty arm and getting their curl stuck to me, he or she would just back up into me further, which was almost as bad as the girl who was flipping her full head of hair over the back of her seat at the Cubs game a year or so ago, and it would tickle my knees, and at one point, a whole huge chunk went right into the top of my fresh beer. Blech. Sick. Let's just take a cue from Howie Mandel and other people who don't like touching for other reasons and keep a safe distance from each other, especially now that summer's here and everyone's gross and sticky and sweaty and even weirder. Okay, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't touch strangers unless you absolutely have to, and especially do not touch them with your hair. There, I fixed it. Listener dilemmas are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. No listener dilemma this week. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Find that's what she said with Sarah Spain. Subscribe to it, rate and review and leave your dilemma in the review. I'll go back and find it and solve it for you on the podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.